We are almost at the end of our series, God, His People, and His Land, Sacred Relationships That Bring Well-Being. We have uh, this Sunday, which we'll be looking a little bit at the prophet Isaiah and the Beatitudes, and then next Sunday will be the conclusion entitled Our Faithful City. We'll be looking at the theme of city in the, in the scriptures and connect that to the prophet Micah. But just briefly, for review's sake, you remember, I hope, that we've been talking about this sacred dance, this sacred relationship that occurs between God and his people and his land. That God is just deeply concerned that his people be living in good relationship with him and in good relationship with each other and in good relationship with the land, with the creation that he has made. And that we're looking for this shalom, we're looking for this well-being, we're looking for this sacredness that comes out of the brokenness that has occurred. We're all, of course, very aware of the brokenness that has occurred in our world. And one of the reasons why this um, topic is so important, I think, to us, but also to me, is that probably most of us have grown up learning about a Christianity that is quite individualistic. The fundamental question seems to be, what is my relationship to God? When I lay my head down on my pillow at night, what does God think of me? Is he happy with me or is he displeased? And what do I do to stay in his favor? What do I do to make sure that he is not displeased with me, both in this world in which we live as well as in the, 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 the afterlife? And there's nothing wrong with that kind of thinking that's in the scriptures, it's there. I am to be concerned about my personal relationship with God. But what that tends to miss is the fact that we also have horizontal responsibilities that God calls us to, that we're part of a community, that we're part of a creation. And we, we are called by God not just to stand in relationship with him, but to move out into the world in which he has placed us in a way that follows Christ, that's redeeming, that brings shalom, that brings well-being, that brings peace. And I have found that over the last couple of decades, but certainly over the last years, and certainly in working through this series, I found that to be very enriching. For me, it is not enough to just be thinking about what does God think of me. That doesn't really give me a reason to get up in the morning. What gives me a reason to get up in the morning is that, but also that I know that he has called me and sent me out into the world in which he's placed me to do his work in his world and be part of that wonderful work that he's doing to reconcile all things to himself. So I hope that this series has helped enrich your perspective and helped you think about these things in a little broader terms. And if you know me, you probably know that these are themes that 
have been around for a while, so they're not totally new for you. But I think what's really fascinating and new is that as you read the scriptures, and particularly as you look for these themes, they pop up all over the place. They really do. If you look for the importance of the land, if you look for the importance of themes like justice and righteousness, they're just, they're just all over the place. And God's call to us to be bringers of justice and righteousness and shalom into the world is also all over the place. So it actually refreshes your Bible reading and your understanding of what the good news of the gospel is. Today we'd like to talk about what I'm calling, and I've taken this directly from Ellen Davis's book, Discipleship in a Sick Society. And I'd like to try to get a little bit practical at the end today. What does it look like to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus in a sick society? And I thought this quote was really good. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, right? Something's wrong there. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I've done that over the last weeks, but there is no question, and especially after this last year, that we're living in a sick society. We're sick with COVID. We have a bad safety net. We're struggling with inequality. We're struggling with poverty. We're struggling with racism. We're struggling with the great... Capitalism, militarism, money, wealth, the big corporations, all of that stuff is being exposed in this time as being just not adequate to do what we need to do for everybody. So what are we to do? How are we to live? What choices are we to make? What does following Jesus look like? What does being a Christian look like? The prophet Isaiah lived about 700 years before Christ. He lived and prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember last week we talked about Jeremiah, and he prophesied to the northern kingdom. Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom. And he had a very long, long time of prophecy, kind of like Jeremiah. That's why Jeremiah and Isaiah are called the major prophets. And and Isaiah was able to experience the sick society of Jerusalem and Judah at its time with all of its injustices and inequalities and violence and death and, and, and trouble. He was also standing at the brink of the exile, this time not to Assyria, but to Babylon. You remember uh, the king of Babylon came in and was the one who captured uh, Jerusalem. And then he was also able to look ahead to the time of restoration. So his, his lifetime and his vision spent time from great uh, societal sickness to the exile, the, the results of that, of that societal sickness, and then also the restoration that is coming. And he speaks in his book, in his prophecy, of um, what is sometimes called 
the suffering servant or the anointed one. Some of you who've been around the church for a long time may remember these terms. Jeremiah speaks of this suffering servant or this anointed one, and probably in the first case is referring to himself. But then he's also referring to Jesus. The New Testament makes that quite clear. And then the New Testament brings us into the picture of being the suffering servant or the anointed one sent out on a mission into the world, this mission of reconciliation to which God has called us. So what I'd like to do is read a passage from Isaiah that speaks of this anointed one, and then we'll go into the New Testament and see how that's reflected there. We're going to read first from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Here's the anointed one, okay? The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, by reading these verses, hopefully, if you've been following me in this series, all kinds of images and ideas are coming to your mind. Good news to the poor, the literal poor. Bind up the brokenhearted, those who have suffered deep pain and loss. Proclaim liberty to captives, to whatever you are a captive of. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you should remember that the year of the Lord's favor is the Jubilee year. This year that comes once every seven years, and then once every 49 years, the big year of Jubilee, when what happens, Dan talked about it a few weeks ago, Sabbath. Where the people are given rest, but not just the people, the land is given rest. Okay? So this anointed one is sent out not just to say, you'll be able to sleep tonight because God is happy with you. No. He's going out to say, there's good news for the poor. The brokenhearted can be bound up. Liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those that are bound. And the year of rest. The year of refreshment. The year of renewal. Is here. And now we'll go to our next Bible passage for this morning, which is Luke chapter 4. So this is Jesus, his very first sermon. He's 30 years old, and he's now for the first time been given a place in the synagogue on Saturday morning to open up the scriptures to the the Jewish people who are sitting there. And Isaiah 61 is the passage of the day. So Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, and you should now be recognizing these words, quoting from Isaiah 61, 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set up to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Sabbath year. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, can you imagine this moment of silence and this moment of tension? He's read this passage, which is so clear in its proclamation of this restoration of this dance between God and his people and his creation. And every Jew knew it. And every Jew was longing that this would happen. Just like we're longing to be able to meet together again after this COVID time. And their longing was probably more intense than our longing is. Because they were actually really, truly suffering. And they are sitting there. And this, you can feel this tension in the building. What is he going to say? And he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is just explosive opening sentence to a sermon. Everything that's broken in our world that will be brought together and that process has come to fulfillment today. Why? Because Jesus is here. Jesus, the Son of God, is here. And there is nothing in here about the afterlife. There's nothing in here about what God thinks about me when I lay my head on the pillow at night. Again, those are themes in the scripture. I'm not getting rid of them. But that's not what this is about. Jesus says, the day has come now when the captives will be set free. There will be good news for the poor. The hearts of those that, the broken hearts of those that are brokenhearted will be bound together. And this year of Sabbath, this year of rest will come. And I have come to do that. And that's what Jesus did, of course, you know. He went around, and what did he do? He preached, and he taught, and he said, I am the Messiah who has come. And then he went out into the world, and he healed, and he cast out evil spirits, and he raised the dead, and he made the blind see and the lame walk, and he forgave the sins, and he was a man of peace. And the people followed him. And wherever he went, the kingdom of God went. And it restored and brought together, at least for those who were willing to follow him. That's what he was doing. 
and it ended up killing him because empire doesn't like that. Empire ain't buying it. It ended up killing him. The empire killed him. But we'll get to this in a second. He did rise again out of the dead. So Jesus, Isaiah was this anointed one. Jesus says, I am now the anointed one. I have come to do these things. And then Jesus calls us to follow in his footsteps. Discipleship in a sick society. We're going to go in just a second to the Beatitudes, to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus kind of like giving to his disciples and to all of us the constitution of the kingdom of God, what what are our basic principles, was also given in a sixth society. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written about 80 years after the birth of Christ. Jerusalem had already been destroyed by the Romans. So Roman imperial power, the empire, is the backdrop of Matthew. And you know the Roman Empire claimed to bring peace and shalom and well-being, but it didn't because it was empire, and empire never does that. Because empire always needs to use violence. So in spite of its claims, there was nothing but violence And in 80 A.D., if you were a Jew, you knew what the Romans had done to Jerusalem, and it was terrible. This was the backdrop. There was huge disparity between the rich and the poor. Ninety percent of the population was economically insecure. And the Romans, in general had huge animosity. They hated the Jews, especially because of the Jewish rebellion that had led to the destruction of Jerusalem. The the Romans hated the Jews so much that they, there was, every year the Jews were supposed to pay a half shekel, the temple tax is what they called it. The Romans replaced that with what they called the Fiscus Judaicus, which was a tax that was levied only against the Jews. So you can imagine living in a society, living in a culture, which was quite diverse by that time, but only you, because you were Jewish, or whatever ethnicity you are, is being taxed. And the revenue from that tax, listen to this, was used to construct a temple in Rome, a temple to the god Jupiter. You can imagine in the United States, and I don't think this will ever happen, but only Christians are taxed. All church buildings are destroyed. And the tax is used to build, I don't know, think of something that you wouldn't like to be built. A nuclear missile silo. Something like that. That's the kind of insult that the Romans were giving to the Jews. Coins were issued in Palestine at this time, bearing the image of a weeping woman with the legend written under it, Judea Capta, captured Judea. 
So not only did you have to pay a tax, you had to pay for your bread and for your things at the market with a coin. And on the coin was stamped, not in God we trust, but you are captured. New Roman cities were being built over Jewish cities. And in that sick society comes Jesus, the anointed one, who says, there's good news for the poor. The captives are going to be liberated. The broken hearts are going to be bound up. And the year of Sabbath jubilee is going to come. And then he starts his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. We did a series here on the Beatitudes a couple years ago, and you remember that that word blessed, which to us sounds kind of spiritual, actually has more of the meaning of congratulations. You are privileged. You are flourishing. And Jesus sees the crowds. He goes on the mountain. He sits down. His disciples come to him that small group of people, that, of men and women that he's called to himself. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and listen now for the echoes of Isaiah. You should by now be able to hear the echoes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And remember this, whenever you see the word righteousness in the New Testament, you can also always translate it with justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, the anointed one, sent to proclaim this good news, now says to his disciples, as you go out into this world, congratulations, blessed are you. You will be flourishing. You will be joining this dance and helping to bring this dance back into being between God, his land, and his people. And it will cost you. It will be painful. They will persecute you like they persecute me, like they killed me. But it's the only way to shalom and well-being and wholeness and restoration. So you see this theme of anointed one from Isaiah through Jesus. And now being passed on in the Sermon on the Mount to us, saying, go into this world. Follow Isaiah, but better follow me. And when you do, blessed things will happen. So in just a few minutes, 
what are some practical things? What does it look like to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus in our Sikh society? Let me just suggest a few. The first one is to decide to give your allegiance to Jesus, the King. That's the first step. Not that if you're not consciously following Jesus, he can't use you. I'm not suggesting that. But if you say, I want to be part of this movement, I want to be part of this kingdom, I want to be part, be part of this work that God is doing to bring restoration for myself and for us and for our world, then the first step is to say, I want to follow this Jesus. I give my allegiance to him. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if he is risen from the dead, then he is the only one who can really do this work. There is no empire. There is no political party. There's no political system. There's no economic system. There's no medical system. There's no any other system that will do what Jesus did. If he rose from the dead, then he can do this. And then he's worth following. So the first question is, have you given your allegiance to Jesus? Is he your king? And then the second thing is to realize, again, that the well-being, the liberation of everyone, including the creation, is all tied up together. You've heard me say this a couple times over the last weeks. I am not truly liberated until everyone is truly liberated. I am not free until you are free. I do not have well-being until our creation has its well-being. See that? If you are going just for you as an individual, you're going to miss this richness. You're going to miss this depth. I am not free. I am not saved, to use the old term, until you're saved. I am not equal until you are equal. I am not well until you are well. And that literally changes your perspective of how you go about in the world, of how you look at people and how you look at the creation. It literally changes things. And it's not an easy change, but it gives so much depth and richness and wealth to the reason for getting up in the morning. And the third thing is, and I've talked about this before, you can educate yourself. You can read about colonialism. You can read and watch movies and documentaries about racism. You can read and study about inequality of whatever kind. You can literally find out things. 
And you can learn. And you can grow in your understanding of what's happening. And your understanding of what you can do about it. And what we can do about it. And you can then participate. And that participation involves, and this is a word that's used a lot nowadays, but I think it really says a lot, being present. Being present in the broken places. Not preaching into the broken places. Being present in the broken places. And yesterday, as always happens, it came across my screen, a tweet. This is from Leslie Newbigin. It's not from Leslie Newbigin because he's dead already, but it's from the people who tweet his quotes. And Leslie Newbigin said this, The deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. The deepest motive for mission is the desire to be with Jesus where he is, at the place where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, the empire, meet each other. Be present. Sometimes you don't even need words. A lot of times you don't even need words, but you're just there. And then do what you can do, however small and seemingly insignificant, to liberate, to comfort, to rectify what is not right, to provide wholeness and shalom. None of us can change the world. None of us can change very much. But we have some control over ourselves. And we have some influence within our homes, the four walls of our homes, or however many walls you have. We have some influence in our communities. Whatever God has given you to do, whatever place he's given you, use it to be an anointed one a bringer of good news, a liberator of the captive, and a person who promotes this idea of Sabbath, of rest, of restoration. There are actually very few heroes in the world, but you don't have to be a hero to make a difference. Be loving, kind, faithful, forgiving, be merciful, be a peacemaker, just keep showing up. And not to do things in your own strength, but to follow in this line from Isaiah through Jesus, through Jesus' disciples, all through the centuries, to be part of this great dance to which God is calling us and which he's making possible. These sacred relationships that bring well-being for everyone.